This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. I am uh, Pastor Sarah, for those of you who don't know me. And I am wrapping up our series on the book of Philippians. How many of you guys have enjoyed this series? This has been so good. I think this and then pairing it with uh, the Being Transformed journal readings, like I feel like Philippians is like down deep in my bones and I have loved it. And so I'm wrapping it up today. But before we get into the message, um, I want to let the ladies know that next Sunday night, so a week from today, right here at six o'clock, we're doing something new called Sanctuary. And uh, what is it? It is Jesus' pursuit and nothing else. And so um, it's for... Uh, all ladies ages fourth grade and up, I envision moms and daughters worshiping, seeking the face of the Lord together. Um, so just come on in just to, to let you know we're not going to have greeters. We're not going to have parking lot. We're keeping it low key. Okay, so just come on in when you get here, find a seat. We're going to take communion together, and then we are just going to, like, our goal for the night is just to minister to the heart of Father God together. Sound good? Okay, so 6 o'clock, just show up. No registration needed. All right. Okay. If you know me, oh, and hi to those watching online. I know we have a lot of people out sick, so we're praying that God just shows up in your houses today, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us online. Um, If you know me, you know that I love reading. Um, And if I'm not reading some spiritual formation book, I am probably reading in a biography or a memoir. And I think that it is the... Uh, insight into the human condition that makes biographies and memoirs so fascinating to me. I was listening to uh, one this summer, and I'm going to read to you a little bit from that today uh, because it's about this famous actor. It's his story, and he talks about this subtle sickness, this subtle sickness that he had that grew into a not-so-subtle sickness. And I'm going to go ahead and right up front name that sickness for you, diagnose it for you, and it is the sickness of discontentment. So I'm going to read this to you, and it's a couple paragraphs long, so here's what you can do. You can just sit back, imagine that you're at the pool, and you're listening to Audible right now, okay? And there's a couple of hints in here. See if you can guess who this biography is about. He writes, there is a strange and perturbing success paradox. When you have nothing, you suffer the fear and pain of grinding to achieve your goals. But when you have everything, you suffer the brutal recurring nightmare of losing it all. I had the wife. I had the family. I had the property with the name. I was the biggest movie star in the world. But I started to notice this subtle sickness. I was more anxious and fearful than ever. I was unstoppable. It was the greatest streak of smash hits of any movie actor in Hollywood history. I became the highest grossing film actor ever, and I still wasn't even 40 years old. The problem was, I'd conflated being successful with being loved and happy. These are three separate things. And since I conflated them, I ended up suffering from an even more insidious version of the subtle sickness, which I can best describe as more more, more, more. If I'm more successful, I'll be happier and people will love me more. Ultimately, this kind of obsession is insatiable. The more you get, the more you want, all the time never quite scratching the itch. You end up with a mind consumed by what it doesn't have and what it didn't get and an aspiring inability to enjoy what it has 
the subtle sickness was becoming a whole lot less subtle. I asked myself, how much did I am legend need to make for me to be happy? How much, how much would have been enough? How many more consecutive number one movies do I need? How much money would it take for me to feel safe and secure? How many Grammys or Academy Awards do I need to feel loved and approved of? When will enough be enough? The problem is the more you get, the more you want. I started to recognize the game, the trick, the insanity, the carrot on the stick. I had never liked vampire movies, but I suddenly understood their mythology. They are a metaphor for insatiable human hunger, unquenchable thirst, and chronic dissatisfaction. The attempt to fill a spiritual hole with external things. Will Smith wrote that. Now, based on the end of the biography, I think that it is safe to say that Will, unfortunately, is looking to the wrong type of spiritual experiences to fill that hole, which is really heartbreaking and rather maddening as the listener when you can see exactly what it is that this guy is looking for, but he can't see it. Like I'm folding laundry and talking back to the book like, Will, what are you doing, bro? Like you don't have to go across the country, across the world in search of some special vine and some special hallucinating tea to find joy and to find happiness. Jesus is the vine. But you see what he's trying to do. He's trying to find the secret of being content. Philippians 4, 10 through 13 is our teaching text today. And before we read it, I want to remind you one more time in this series that it is the Apostle Paul that is writing these verses, and he is writing them from not-so-desirable circumstances. He has been caged for two years, going on two years. He is under house arrest. He is unable to move about freely because he is chained to a prison guard. He is awaiting trial. His very life is at stake, and local pastors in the area are so jealous of Paul that they have launched a smear campaign against him. They're trying to ruin his reputation. In the midst of all this, he's writing this letter to the church that he helped plant in Philippi. Now, in our text today, we're going to see that when this church heard about the circumstances that Paul was in, they collected an offering and they sent it to him. Now, why would they need to collect an offering for Paul, a prisoner? What is he going to do with this money anyways? Is he going to use it for an attorney? No. Maybe he's going to, like... Order some food like Uber Eats, get it delivered to the house for him and the prison guard. No, it was to cover his rent for the house that he was under arrest in. So he is having to pay for his own imprisonment. This is the set of circumstances that Paul finds himself in, not great, yet he writes in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He was like, you were concerned for me, but you couldn't really do anything about it. But then you got concerned for me, and this time you could do something about it, and I'm super thankful. Then he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, isn't it interesting that Will Smith wrote about how he was dissatisfied, 
how he was discontent when he was a nobody in Philly, and how he was also discontent when he was the highest grossing actor in Hollywood. He was discontent when he was climbing that ladder, and he was discontent when the ladder was climbed. He lived in fear. He didn't know how to have joy in the low seasons and joy in the high seasons. He lived in fear, fear of never making it. What if, I'm never, what if I never become somebody important? What if I never get the acceptance and love and approval that I'm so desperate for? And then he finally feels like he's made it, and now he's afraid that it's all going to crumble, that it's all going to fall, fear of losing it all. And Paul writes the exact opposite. He has learned to be content in whatever situation. He knows how to be brought low, and he knows how to abound. Paul's like, guys, I could do Philly, and I can do Hollywood. I can do either, I can do or, I can do both. He says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, of hustling and goals attained. Now, if you were being honest in here this morning, on a scale, like you know how like on a scale of one to 10? Okay, on a scale of Will's not so subtle sickness of discontentment to Paul's secret of happiness, are you closer to the sickness over here or are you closer to Paul's secret over here? I remember when we first started New Song eight years ago and uh, we were running a good, like on a good Sunday, we were running about 80 adults. And um, in fact, the lowest um, weekend attendance on record at New Song was the weekend, my first time preaching ever. Um, <laughs> there were 47 adults in this cafetorium that could have easily fit 500 people. So it felt like there was four people in there, but the Lord showed up. Um, but we wanted more people. We wanted more people to come and see what God was doing in the Haskell Elementary Cafetorium. And there was like this magic number that floated out there. A thousand. If we could just get a thousand people coming here, then we'll really be doing some significant stuff for the kingdom of God. We were actually kind of taught that as a church planter. Like they have conferences that you can go to and learn how to get your church to a thousand, which we've since learned like that's not the way that God grows his church. Um, but we wanted more people to come. Okay, now we are a church of about a thousand. And um, I've learned something <laughs> that the responsibility of pastoring 80 people is a lot less than the responsibility in the weight of a thousand people. It's like God's answered these prayers, right? Um, but it's a lot. And I, I find myself wishing I could go back to 30-year-old Sarah and say, hey, you need to just learn to be content right where you're at. God has you here. He has the right people here. Instead of thinking about how you wish more people could come, why don't you be super present and why don't you pastor these 80 people the best that you know how? Also, 30-year-old Sarah, you should know that a 1,000 people would crush you <laughs> because you are nowhere near spiritually mature. Like you have so much growing up in Christ to do. But I can't go back and tell 30-year-old Sarah that. So what do I do? I have to tell 38-year-old Sarah that when now I'm like, okay, I've got the 1,000, the magic number, but if we could just get more space, then I'd be truly content. If I could just hire that guy full-time, then I would be truly content. No, I tell myself right now, no, 
be present to what God is doing right now. Yes, pray for those things. Yes, believe God for those things. But don't wait on those things to be truly content. Learn the secret of being content now. How old will you be in 10 years from now? I made it a nice round number so that you could get there quickly. Okay? For those of you who are not good at math like myself. Okay, 10 years from now. Okay, 10 years into the future year. If, if 10 years into the future you could have coffee with right now you, so 48-year-old Sarah having coffee with 38-year-old Sarah. Okay, put yourself in that scenario. What areas of discontentment do you think future you might want to talk to right now you about? I can hear conversations going something like this. Hey, younger me. Hey, Junior, you look great. Um, I know that you are waiting for that staff member to be content. I know that you are waiting for that relationship to be content. I know that you are waiting for that phone call, for that promotion. I know that you are waiting for that prodigal to return to be content. I know that you're waiting for that relationship to be restored, to be content. I know that you're waiting for that financial breakthrough to be content. I know that you're waiting for fill in the blank to be content. But hear me, if you do not learn the secret of being content right now, when the prodigal returns, you won't be content. When the re relationship is restored, you won't be content. When you get the girl the promotion, when the phone call comes, you won't be content. You've got to learn the secret of being content now and younger you might say okay but how how like tell me this secret of being content and future you would say got it pay extra close attention to church on sunday september 17th 2023 because the apostle paul has some holy spirit inspired words that you're gonna want to wrap your little heart around let's pray lord we thank you holy spirit Come, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. Would you speak to our hearts, Lord, today? Like we give you room, we give you room, we give you our thoughts, our hearts, our focus, our attention. You're worthy of it all, Lord. As we come to your word today to sit under your word, to submit to your word. Lord, you love your word. You glorify your word. You honor your word. So we honor your word today. Would, would you help it to come alive to us? Give us fresh revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Philippians 4.11. Let's read it again. Paul writes, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, I want to take a moment here and get up under this word content, like really lift the hood and see what this word content um, means here. When Paul writes it, uh, it means to be free from care because of satisfaction with what is already one's own. To be free from care because of satisfaction, because of what is already one's own. I'm going to say it again, but this time with the sound effects that I hear in my head when I read it, okay? Yep, sound effects. To be free from care. <sighs> Someone just breathe a sigh like you're so free from care. <sighs> to be free from care because of satisfaction. Mmm, like chocolate chip cookies and warm blanket. Okay, to be free from care because of satisfaction with what is already one's own. It means to be pleased 
Contentment is a habit or a permanent state of mind, a rested, satisfied mind. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here for content is this word artarkes. And when he uses this word, he's painting like the most beautiful picture, like the most unforgettable picture. What he's thinking about when he uses this word content, when he says, um, I have learned the secret to being content of artarkes. Artarkes was used for a country with everything it needed within its border, its borders. Therefore, nothing had to be imported. A content country has all of the resources and natural products needed to be self-sufficient. So the food, water, energy, it's all within its borders. A content country possesses the capability to meet its essential needs internally without heavy dependence on external resources. It reminds me of the board game Settlers of Catan. Do you know this game? This game is so fun. It sounds super nerdy, but I promise it's fun. It's like my top... Two, board game, Monopoly, then Settlers of Catan. Okay, it's like in the game when you have your little settlement on this awesome intersection where it is touching all the resources that you need and your numbers are just rolling. Your numbers are dropping. And so you are deep in the resources and you don't have to depend on the other players. You don't have to do three-to-one trades. You just get whatever you want whenever you want and you're going to win the game that way. Okay, this is what Paul is talking about when he says content. I've learned the secret of being content. He's painting a picture of possessing an inner sufficiency that doesn't rely on external circumstances for fulfillment. Or one more time, not needing things from the outside to feel rested and satisfied on the inside. So is Paul saying that he is the man? And that he is smart enough, he is strong enough, he is deep enough, patient enough, resilient enough to just be content no matter what type of situation that he is facing. No, that's not what he is saying. He is not saying that he is this perfect little island of a man and he doesn't need help from anyone else. He is not saying that he is all he needs. He is saying he has all he needs in the fullness of Christ who is his life. Who is his life? Colossians 3 is one of my favorite passages. I have been memorizing, meditating Colossians 3. I'm telling you, it's so transformative. But in Colossians 3, Paul, again, writing to the church of Colossae, he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I love it. Paul's just like, hey, guys, you've died. You've died. Like, that's such a great way to start a letter. Dear Church of Colossae, for you have died, but your life is hidden with Christ in God. Speaking of a new life in Christ. And then he's just like, and obviously now Christ, who is your life, not your afterthought, but Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you're going to appear with him in glory. Paul says, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Paul also says, it is in Christ that I live and I move and I have my being. Christ says, I'm a new create, or Paul says, I'm a new creation in Christ. He talks often about how he's putting on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. Christ was not Paul's tradition. Christ was not the box that Paul checked on some form when he is filling out something about his religion. Christ was not a a, a word in his Instagram bio. 
Christ was not an initial on a bracelet that he wore to school. Christ was Paul's life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Not when Christ, who is your hobby or your tradition or your mascot or your initial or your theory appears, but when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is what kind of relationship that Paul has with Jesus. We read a few weeks ago how he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because either way, if I live, I'm living for Christ. If I die, I'm dying and I'm, I'm with Christ. Because Christ was Paul's life, he was like a content country. He had everything he needed pertaining to life and godliness within his borders. His essential needs were met internally without dependence on external resources. And I'm not just talking about food, water, and shelter. I'm talking about these deep soul-level needs that every human that has breath in their lung has. The need to belong. The need to be significant. The need for significance. The need to be secure. Because Christ was Paul's life, no imports were needed to stimulate his joy economy. His joy economy was thriving. No matter what was happening around him, why? Because Christ was his life. Nothing needed to be imported from outside of Christ in order for him to be content. Nothing. Like no thing. And when we get to that place, when we get to that place, church, where we can say our joy and our rest and our significance and our identity and our security is dependent on no thing except the fullness of Christ, we will be cured from the not-so-subtle sickness of discontentment. If Christ is not your life, you're going to be discontent as you climb the ladder, and you're going to be discontent when the ladder is climbed, which is truly heartbreaking to think about people working all of their lives trying to attain this goal, and they finally get there. And they're not happy. They're still restless. They're still discontent. Alexander McLaren says, The fortress that has a deep well in the yard and plenty of provisions within is the only one that can hold out. Paul was a fortress with a deep well in the yard and plenty of provisions within because Christ was his life. Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Can we just try something? Let's say that three times together this morning, church, so it doesn't just like kind of breeze right over us. I really want to, you to get this deep in your bones today. So if you would say it with me, let's say it together. One, two, three. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Okay, let's say it again. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Okay, and pause for a second. I want you to say it one more time, and I want you to say it like this could be true of you. Like this could be true of you. Okay, ready? One, two, three. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Okay, how did Paul learn this? He did not learn this by sitting at the feet of the rabbis. Um, he was schooled by the best of the best rabbis in Judaism, but that's not where he learned this. He didn't learn this um, by receiving one of the finest educations in the land. He didn't learn this working his way up to head Pharisee. He didn't learn this by reading a book like 10 Steps, Baby Steps Towards Contentment. Um, how did he learn this? How did he learn the secret of being content in Christ? He gives us a clue in verse 12. It says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound 
in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Okay, when Paul says he's learned the secret of being content, he's not speaking of head knowledge. He's not speaking that he knows it up here. He is speaking of an experiential knowledge, a heart knowledge. He is speaking of an understanding that comes through personal experience. Okay, think about driving a car. I did not learn to drive a car sitting in some cylinder, glossy cylinder blocked room with no windows, dark, depressing, two Saturdays in a row, hours and hours, some boring person is talking about the ins and outs of driving while I eat my um, Arby's Market Fresh sandwich. I don't know why I remember that so well, but I can remember driver's ed Market Fresh sandwich bored out of my mind. That's not how I learned how to drive. I learned to drive behind the wheel of a car, an actual car, right? And the same is true for you. Like you learned how to use your signal and turn on your um, windshield wipers and change lanes and parallel park, maybe. Not, I still don't know how to, I've done it once on my driver's test and that, that was it. That was the end of that. But you didn't learn how to drive sitting in a car. You learned because a, a brave parent or an instructor got in a car with you, let you sit behind the actual wheel and get some hands-on, real-life, experiential heart knowledge. Now, for those of you who don't drive yet, think about riding a bike. How did you learn to ride a bike? Did you learn to ride a bike? Um, by reading about it in a book. Like, I'm going to get all the books on bicycles in the library, read it all, and now I know how to do it. No. You learned by getting on the bike. Experience is the best teacher. Okay, Gus, my 15-year-old, he's in the middle of this right now. He's going through driver's ed. He's got a lot of head knowledge about driving a car, but he's only had one brief experience behind the wheel. How many knows that if he goes into the DMV when he turns 16 with no more experience than that, they are not going to give him a license and say, here you go, just because he can ace a written exam. He needs more time behind the wheel, more experience to be able to say that I have learned the secret of driving. He hasn't learned the secret of driving yet. He needs more experience. When Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content, he is letting us know that what he has learned, this secret that he has learned, he learned through experience in the school of discipleship to Jesus. You've probably heard somebody say before, experience is the best teacher. I just said it. Experience is the best teacher, and the worst experiences teach the best lessons. Okay, but more accurately, it is Jesus is the best teacher. And if we will look to him, he can teach us the best lessons and the worst experiences. Paul has had a lot of worst experiences. And he has learned in these experiences how to reign above it all with Christ. How to not just endure through it, but to have joy through it. How to not just survive it, but to thrive through it. How to not just not just melt down, but to have the peace of God ruling in his heart. He has learned it through experience. He has experienced both sitting in the lap of luxury and sitting in the lap of poverty. And he learned through that experience that when he had everything he needed and some extra over here in the lap of luxury, that his contentment, that his joy did not come from the abundance or the luxury that he was living in. 
So when he faced hunger and great need and he's sitting over here in the lap of poverty, he wasn't content to be discontent. Well, I'll just be down and depressed until I can get back over here into the lap of luxury. No, because he knew from experience that the food and the provision were not what sourced his contentment. This wasn't just head knowledge for Paul. This wasn't just some theory. This wasn't some philosophical idea. He was like, here, you guys might want to try this on. This was Paul speaking from heart experience, real time, real life, behind the wheel situations. He is saying, as I have journeyed through my life, in every scene of the movie of my life, in every scene, the good, the bad, the ugly, this truth has been solidified in the depths of my soul. Christ is enough. No exceptions. Christ is enough. No exceptions. Paul could say this, and he can say it boldly, that he's learned the secret of being content. Now, don't let the word secret throw you there. Like, a lot of people, when you hear the word secret, maybe you're thinking like, this is like some special secret club that only certain people have access to. Like secrets typically make people feel kind of left out, right? Like remember at the lunch table when you're sitting there and some people start whispering and you don't know what they're saying? It's agonizing. It's like one of the meanest things ever when people are whispering. But this secret isn't like that, okay? It's more like this. I was driving past HTO the other day. And I saw on their big marquee, their big sign, I saw this. It says, there it is. It says, secret menu flavor, mango tango. Okay? It's on their big billboard. Anybody driving past their establishment can see this. Secret menu flavor, mango tango. Well, how secret is it if you're putting it up there for everybody to see? Right? Exactly. It is not a secret at all. This is more of an initiation into a new mysterious flavor that you may have never heard about. They want us to know it, the fine folks at HTO. They want us to know about it. They are inviting us to learn their open secret. It's an open invitation to try something different. They're like, we know that you might be satisfied with your unsweet coconut tea, but we want to initiate you into the mango tango group. We want you to become acquainted Acquainted with this new fusion of tantalizing sweet turbo citrus, sweet mango fresco topped with limes. They've like, they're like, we've tried it. We've tasted it. We've experienced it. We've learned the secret of mango tango, and we want to share this open secret with you. Okay, Paul. This is like Paul in his letters. He has this big towering marquee for Anyone who's willing to drive by and read what he has written, and on that marquee it says, secret menu flavor, Christ is enough. No exceptions. Well, how secret is it if you're just putting it out there for everybody to see, Paul? Exactly. It is not a secret. It's more of an initiation into this holy mystery. Paul wants us to know about it. He is inviting us to come and live into this open secret. He's like, you may be, you, he, you may be used to your unsweet driving yourself nuts trying to find joy life, but I want to initiate you into this Christ is enough group. No exceptions. 
I want you to become properly acquainted with this new fusion recipe that I have found for being joyful, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. He's like, I've tried it, guys. I've tasted it. I've experienced it. I've learned the secret. Christ is enough, no exceptions, and I'm sharing this open secret with you. And then he writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He is a fortress with a deep well in the yard and plenty of provisions within. Christ is his life. And he is aware that because Christ is his life, there is this living power flowing through him, strengthening him, resurrection power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Not one kind of like it, but the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in him, strengthening him to do all things. Now, I hate to burst your bubble, but this is not one of those alls where pastors be like, all means all, right? No, this is not one of those times. All does not mean all here. All things through him who strengthens me. All things, for instance, is never going to include sin or things that God hates. All things is never going to include some supernatural feat, like making a team that you're actually not that, you're not good enough for to make, okay? All things would never include supernatural feats like parachuting out of a, a, par- a plane without a parachute and saying, well, I can survive because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not how this verse works. This means all things within the will of God. Well, you're like, well, that's no fun. No, it is fun because, <laughs> because God's will is good and perfect and pleasing and it's holy. It's like I can do all things that God has called me to do. I can do all things, meaning all things, defined by God's word. So what's Paul doing here? He is referring to his ability to be content. He's saying, I can be content. I can do this because Christ is strengthening me. I can be free from care because of satisfaction with what is already my own. Christ is mine. Christ is my own and I am his. He is my beloved and I am his. He's saying, I can do this. I can be content. This is God's will for me to be free from care because of satisfaction, because he is mine, because he is my life. Christ is enough, no exceptions. What exceptions are you making to Christ's rule? What exceptions are you making to this rule? Christ is enough. Yeah, 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 Christ is enough. Christ is enough, except Christ is enough except if I don't get that promotion. Then he's not enough. Then my whole world is like going to crumble and fall and I'm going to be super depressed for months and months. Christ is enough except when that guy doesn't call me back. Christ is enough except when I don't get approved for that loan. What exceptions are you making? If you live with exceptions like these, here is what happens. I got the promotion But turns out I'm still starved for significance. The guy called me back, but I feel like I'm not good. I still feel like I'm not good enough. I still feel like a loser. I did get approved for the loan, but now I'm just worried that I'm going to lose my job, not going to be able to make the payments, and I'm going to end up filing for bankruptcy. If you live with exceptions to that rule, you won't be able to experience what it's like to be content in Christ James Smith says, the heart's hunger is infinite. 
which is why it will ultimately be disappointed by anything merely finite. Humans are those strange creatures who can never be fully satisfied by anything created, though that never stops us from trying. I lived the Beach Boys song, Wouldn't It Be Nice? I lived that song in real life. In fact, 20 years ago, um, at our wedding, after Josh kissed his bride and the pastor announces us, you may, uh, or I present to you Mr. and Mrs. Joshua Blunt, we walked down the aisle to that song. Like our first moment as, as husband and wife was to that epic Beach Boys song. I don't know if you know it. You need to play it on Spotify on the way home. It's got this little like keyboard sound and then it's boom, wouldn't it be nice? And we just bopped down the row, got my little ponytail. It was awesome. Or as the teenagers say, like our whole wedding was pretty mid for the most part, but this moment, guys, was a W. It was a solid, <laughs> solid W. Okay, the lyrics to the song says, wouldn't it be nice if we were older? Then we wouldn't have to wait so long. And wouldn't it be nice to live together in the kind of world where we belong? You know it's going to make it that much better when we can say goodnight and stay together. This song, like so many other love songs, is all about longing. It's longing for a future. In this case, longing for a future where being married and being in love will overcome any obstacles and bring you lasting happiness. Here we were, husband and wife. No more wishing, no more hoping, no, no more praying. Now, now I could be truly content. I've married the man of my dreams. And now the wouldn't it be nice? Now we're living in that. We can spend the day together and then we can stay, say goodnight, but we get to stay together. And this is going to make everything that much better. But about three months in, I was like, wait a second. <sighs> I finally got I finally got what I thought would make me happy, what I thought would make me happy ever after, and I'm not all that happy. I was discontent, and this subtle sickness began to creep in, and it began to grow and grow until two to three years into our marriage, I found myself in an emotional affair with some guy at work. What was wrong with me? What was wrong with me? This is what I wanted. I wanted this so bad. And now I'm not happy. What was wrong with me? Christ was not my life. I was my life. And although I worked at the church, and although I read my Bible, and I attended church a lot, Christ was not my life. He was more of an ideal. And like the Israelites who would pull out the Ark of the Covenant when they thought it might help them win a battle, that was me with Jesus. I'll pull you out when I think you might help me win a battle or bring some victory into my world. I was my life. Josh was my life. When I met him as a teenager, he quickly became an idol, and I did not recognize it. I turned away from my first love, and I began looking to my future husband. I began looking to him to be my source of joy. I began looking to him to, to be that source of perfect love that I was longing for, for a source of identity. I began looking to him to find belonging and security and significance in this finite human relationship, and I was stunned and heartbroken 
when I realized that this 23-year-old boy who also could not say at the time that Christ was his life, that he wasn't going to be able to be those things for me, that he could not bring me that peace and joy and significance and identity that I was looking for. It's really heartbreaking when the soundtrack of your life is, wouldn't it be nice? And you think that when you finally get this thing, your restless heart is finally going to be at rest. And then to get that thing and to realize that your restless heart is just as restless as ever. I did not have all that I needed. I walked away from the deep well. I walked away from the yard with plenty of provisions. And in the meantime, I was busy. I was busy trying to import. I was busy trying to smuggle into my life the things that I thought would fill the deepest longings of my heart the things that I thought would quench this unquenchable thirst, this attempt to fill the spiritual hole with external things. It's more of a hole, though. It's more like a chasm, which is why no amount of money, success, fame, the biggest houses, grandest views, all the relationships could never fill it. But something happened. By the grace of God, I returned to my first love, and I began this lifelong process of what Paul refers to as taking hold of Christ who had taken hold of me. Philippians 3, 12 through 14, he says, Not that I have already grasped it all or have already become perfect, but I press on, if I may also, take hold of that for which I was taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christ had laid hold of me when I was a young girl. He had laid his gentle and firm hands on my little shoulders and said, she's mine. And I said, yes, Lord, I'm yours. But I hadn't quite taken hold of the reason why he had taken hold of me. There's a little bit of a missing piece there. Like I was aware of the immediate results, that forgiveness of sin, instant forgiveness of sin, instant acceptance by God. My name is now written in the Lamb's book of life. I was aware that God had removed a stony heart and given me a new heart, but I hadn't taken hold of the reason why he had taken hold of me. Paul or Saul had this amazing encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus where Christ lays hold of him. The immediate results were Saul was forgiven, forgiven, accepted, God removed the scales from his eyes and his stony heart. He gave him a new heart and he gave him a new name, Paul. But Paul knew that conversion was not the only reason why Christ had taken hold of him. Alexander McLaren says we must start there. We must start there. Taking hold of Christ as our Savior and as the atonement of our sins. He says we have to start there, but woe to us if we stop there. And that's where so many stop. I'm forgiven, goals attained. That's why so few can truly say with Paul, Christ, who is my life. That's why so few can truly say with Paul, I have learned the secret of being content because they stop there at conversion. Paul is saying, I've been forgiven, but goal not attained. I have been laid hold of. I understand I have been laid hold of for something. I've been laid hold of to experience 
just glimpses of how deep and wide and high and long the love of Christ is. I've been laid hold of for friendship and intimacy with God. I've been laid hold of because God wants to fulfill the deepest longings of my heart. He wants to satisfy me. I have been laid hold of because God wants to lavish his love on me. He wants to pour his love on me as much as I can handle it. I've been laid hold of because God wants to walk with me and talk with me and tell me that I am his own. I've been laid hold of because God wants to use me to fill the earth with his glory. Paul knows. Paul knows that Christ has laid hold of him for a transforming relationship in which he will look more and more like the one who has laid hold of him. And what does Paul do with this knowledge? He says, now, now I will spend the rest of my life trying to lay hold of the one who's laid hold of me. He's talking about his pursuit of Christ. He's saying, I'm gonna pursue him. I'm gonna pursue the one who laid hold of me. I'm gonna pursue him with all that I have. One commentator says when Paul writes that he will press on to take hold of what he was taken hold of for, he uses a word to describe a sprinter running a race. The idea is that he's running swiftly after something like a runner pressing on to the finish line. I brought this picture of Wilma Rudolph. She is an Olympic sprinter. And this is what I want my inner pursuit of God to resemble. This is what I want my pursuit of God to look like. He says, picture the runner widening their stride, pumping their arms, accelerating their legs and pushing out their chest for the finish line. This is Paul's all-out effort to pursue Christ. Does this resemble your effort in pursuit of the one who has taken hold of you? Does this resemble you and your stance of trying to take hold of the one that has taken hold of you? This was Paul's singular passion, his singular focus. He lived, he lived to stay in continual touch with Jesus. He wrote often about how he was seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He wrote often about don't set your mind on things on the earth, set your mind on things above. He lived to stay in continual touch with Jesus, meditating on him, having secret and sac or sacred and sweet communion with him. He carefully avoided things that would come between him and knowledge of Christ. He remained in Christ and Christ remained in him. Jesus said, remain in me and I'll remain in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Or Paul would say it like this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's this steady import of Christ's life flooding into Paul's life, into Paul's heart. Why? Because Paul's some amazing super apostle? No, because Paul yields to him every day. He yields to him day after day, hour to hour, I'm sure sometimes moment to moment, he yields to him saying, I was dead, but now I'm alive and you're my life. And so yes, God, obviously I'm going to yield to you moment to moment, day 
today. He positions himself. Paul positions himself when he yields like this. He positions himself to receive more and more of God's empowering grace. Grace to sing in the stocks at midnight with Silas. Grace to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Grace to continually pray for those churches that he planted that he planted. Grace to author 13 books of the New Testament. Grace to keep going. Grace to fight the good fight. Grace to keep the faith. Grace to run his race. Grace to be content in all circumstances. When I began this lifelong pursuit of laying hold of the one who laid hold of me, I began to experience the fullness of of Christ, and I've never stopped experiencing the fullness of Christ. I went back to that well that I hadn't drawn from. I went back to that garden that was within, and I found there all of the joy, all of the rest, all of the love, all of the acceptance, all of the security that I could ever need. I tried the secret menu flavor. Christ is enough, no exceptions, and I will never go back. A.W. Tozer says, there is no greater satisfaction than knowing Christ and being known by him. In him, we find true fulfillment. This is why these guys like Will Smith, this is like these guys like Rain Wilson, who are like some expedition to find true bliss. This is why they can't find it. There's no greater satisfaction than knowing Christ and being known by him. In him, we find true fulfillment, content. Content means to be free from care because of satisfaction with what is already one's own. Paul teaches us in the book of Philippians that true satisfaction, true satisfaction belongs to those who wake up each day hungry, hungry and thirsty for more, for more of the one who is already their own to the degree in which they desire him. You can have as much of him as you want. And the more you get, the more you want, which is, Will Smith pointed out, is a problem when the things that we seek and the things that we want are finite earthly treasure and love and acceptance from finite human beings. But in the subversive kingdom, the more you get, the more you want is not a problem. The more you get, the more you want is actually the answer because the one that we want and the one that we seek is supremely, supremely infinite. He's supremely intimate. It's the answer. The more you get, the more you want. If you want to be content, begin the lifelong process of taking hold of the one who's taken hold of you, like that runner in the picture. And I want to close with Paul's word to the church of Ephesus. Just a little more, trying to, to, trying to like grind it in there a little bit more. Why Christ has taken hold of you? Because maybe you're in here today and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, I thought it was just that moment when he laid his hands on my shoulders and says, you're mine. And I said, yes, Lord, I'm yours. But there's been this missing piece. I want to remind you why, why he has laid hold of you. Ephesians 1, 3, how blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. He had us in mind. He'd settled on us 
as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us. This is why he laid hold of us. He wanted us to enter in to the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son, Jesus. He wanted you to enter in to the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Christ is enough, no exceptions. Would you stand to your feet? I'm gonna invite our altar ministry team to come down and um, we're gonna open up the altars here in just a second and there's like the general altar call, like if you're dealing with maybe sickness in your body or you have a decision that you're about to make, you wanna pray for discernment, whatever that is, if it matters to you, it matters to God. But let me give you three things here that the Lord laid on my heart for altar ministry. Invitations to respond to what he's been stirring in your hearts. If you've been dealing with the subtle sickness of discontentment, or maybe it's not so subtle anymore, it's full blown and you've been waiting on that, like waiting on this fill in the blank to be content and to be at rest, I wanna invite you to come down to the altar today and just surrender that to God and say, I trust you, I trust you. If I never get that, you're still good and I will serve you and love you and live for you and pursue you all the days of my life. I'm gonna surrender it to you right now. I'm sorry, Lord, I see that I've made it an idol and I've been looking to this thing to be my source of joy, contentment, rest, satisfaction, whatever that is. If something's rising up in you, I wanna invite you to come down and pray with somebody or maybe you don't wanna pray with anybody but you wanna come kneel at the altar. It's just a moment of consecration, a moment of surrender. I'm surrendering this to you, God. Secondly, maybe you wanna ask God in here today. Um, some of you wanna ask him to renew your hunger. Maybe you've walked away from that well, that garden of provisions and you wanna return to your first love. He's there, he's waiting, he's ready, he's excited, he's not mad. He cannot wait to embrace you. Like that you're even thinking this thought is just pleasing to him. He loves you so much. Remember, you're the focus of his love. He's not mad. Maybe at one point you felt like he was your life. Like, yeah, Christ's my life. But now it's just like, yeah, he's a nice thought. He's that letter on a bracelet. But you're not satisfied with that anymore. You want the real thing. You want Christ to be your life. I want to invite you to come down and pray with someone too for God to stir up that hunger, to fan that that love, to fan that into flame today. And then third, maybe you feel like God's taking hold of you today. Like for the first time, you feel his gentle and firm hands on your shoulder saying, you're mine. And you wanna say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. And I'm gonna start the lifelong pursuit of taking hold of you who, taking hold of me today on this Sunday morning in Edmond, Oklahoma. I wanna invite you to the altar if that's you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw every person in need of prayer. We say, do what you want to do. We give you permission. God, speak to us and stir us. Lord, strengthen us, enable us to obey you, to respond to what you're doing. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for New Song Church OKC in the App Store.